Section 10 of Lives of Girls Who Became Famous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jill Preston. Lives of Girls Who Became Famous by Sarah K. Bolton. Section 10. Madame de Stal. It was the 20th of September, 1881. The sun shone out mild and beautiful upon Lake Geneva as we sailed up to Coppet. The banks were dotted with lovely homes, half hidden by the foliage, while brilliant flower beds came close to the water's edge. Snow-covered Mont Blanc looked down upon the restful scene, which seemed as charming as anything in Europe. We alighted from the boat and walked up from the landing between great rows of oaks, horse chestnuts, and sycamores to the famous home we had come to look upon, that of Madame de Stal. It is a French chateau, two stories high, drab with green blinds, surrounding an open square, Vines clamor over the gate and the high walls, and lovely flowers blossom everywhere. As you enter, you stand in a long hall, with green curtains, with many busts, the finest of which is that of Monsieur Necker. The next room is the large library, with furniture of blue and white, and the next hung with old goblin tapestry, is the room where Madame Recimiar used to sit with Madame de Stal and look out upon the exquisite scenery, restful even in their troubled lives. Here is the work table of her whom Macaulay called the greatest woman of her times, and of whom Byron said, She is a woman by herself, and has done more than all the rest of them together intellectually she ought to have been a man next we enter the drawing-room with carpet woven in a single piece the furniture red and white we stop to look upon the picture of monsieur necker the father a strong noble-looking man of the mother in white silk dress with powdered hair and very beautiful and a stall herself in a brownish yellow dress with low neck and short sleeves holding in her hand the branch of flowers which she always carried or a leaf that thus her hands might be employed while she engaged in the conversation that astonished europe here also are the pictures of the baron her husband in white wig and military dress here her idolized son and daughter the latter beautiful with mild, sad face and dark hair and eyes. What brings thousands to this quiet retreat every year? Because here lived and wrote and suffered the only person whom the great Napoleon feared, whom Galif of Geneva declared the most remarkable woman that Europe has produced, learned, rich, the author of Corinne and Almang, whose talents in conversation says George Tickner, were perhaps the most remarkable of any person that ever lived.
April 27, 1766, was the daughter of James Necker, Minister of Finance, under Louis XVI, a man of fine intellect, the author of fifteen volumes, and Susanna, daughter of a Swiss pastor, beautiful, educated, and devotedly Christian. Necker had become rich in early life through banking, and had been made by the Republic of Geneva, her resident minister at the court of Versailles. When the throne of Louis seemed crumbling because the people were tired of extravagance and heavy taxation, Necker was called to his aid, with the hope that economy and retrenchment would save the nation. He also loaned the government two million dollars. The home of the Neckers in Paris naturally became a social center, which the mother of the family was well fitted to grace. Gibbon had been deeply in love with her. He says, I found her learned without pedantry, lively in conversation, pure in sentiment, and elegant in manners, and the first sudden emotion was fortified by the habits and knowledge of a more familiar acquaintance. At Cressier and Lausanne, I indulged my dream of felicity, but on my return to England, I soon discovered that my father would not hear of this strange alliance, and that, without his consent, I was myself destitute and helpless. After a painful struggle, I yielded to my fate. I sighed as a lover. I obeyed as a son. Gibbon never married, but retained his lifelong friendship and admiration for Madame Necker. It was not strange, therefore, that Gibbon liked to be present in her salon, where Buffon, Hume, Diderot, and D'Alembert were wont to gather. The child of such parents could scarcely be other than intellectual, surrounded by such gifted minds. Her mother, too, was a most systematic teacher, and each day the girl was obliged to sit by her side, erect on a wooden stool, and learn difficult lessons. She stood in great awe of her mother, wrote Simon the Traveler, but was exceedingly familiar with and extravagantly fond of her father. Madame Necker had no sooner left the room one day after dinner than the young girl, till then timidly decorous, suddenly seized her napkin and threw it across the table at the head of her father, and then flying round to him, hung upon his neck, suffocating all his reproofs by her kisses. Whenever her mother returned to the room, she at once became silent and restrained. The child early began to show literary talent, writing dramas, and making paper kings and queens to act her tragedies. This the mother thought to be wrong, and it was discontinued. But when she was twelve, the mother having somewhat relented, she wrote a play, which she and her companions acted in the drawing-room. Grimm was so pleased with her attempts that he sent extracts to his correspondence throughout Europe. At fifteen, she wrote an essay on the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, and another upon Montesquieu's Spirit of Laws. Overtaxing the brain with her continuous study, 
she became ill, and the physician, greatly to her delight, prescribed fresh air and sunshine. Here often she roamed from morning till night on their estate at St. Ouen. Madame Necker felt deeply the thwarting of her educational plans, and years after, when her daughter had acquired distinction, said, It is absolutely nothing compared to what I would have made it. Monsieur Necker's restriction of pensions and taxing of luxuries soon aroused the opposition of the aristocracy, and the weak but good-hearted king asked his minister to resign. Both wife and daughter felt the below keenly, for both idolized him so much so that the mother feared lest she be supplanted by her daughter. Madame de Stal says of her father, From the moment of their marriage to her death, the thought of my mother dominated his life. He was not like other men in power, attentive to her by occasional tokens of regard, but by continual expressions of most tender and most delicate sentiment. Of herself, she wrote, our destinies would have united us forever if fate had only made us contemporaries. At his death, she said, if he could be restored to me, I would give all my remaining years for six months. To the last, he was her idol. For the next few years, the family traveled most of the time, Necker bringing out a book on the finances, which had a sale at once of a hundred thousand copies. A previous book, the Comte Rondu Arrault, showing how for years the monies of France had been wasted, had also a large sale. For these books, and especially for other correspondence, he was banished forty leagues from Paris. The daughter's heart seemed well nigh broken at this intelligence. Loving Paris, saying she would rather live there on one hundred francs a year and lodge in the four-story than anywhere else in the world, how could she bear for years the isolation of the country? Joseph the Second, King of Poland, and the King of Naples offered Necker fine positions, but he declined. Mademoiselle Necker had come to womanhood, not beautiful, but with wonderful fascination and tact. She could compliment persons without flattery, was cordial and generous, and while the most brilliant talker could draw to herself the thoughts and confidences of others. She has also written a book on Rousseau, which was much talked about. Pitt of England, Count Fersen of Sweden, and others sought her in marriage, but she loved no person as well as her father. Her consent to marriage could be obtained only by the promise that she should never be obliged to leave him. Baron de Stahl, a man of learning and fine social position, ambassador from Sweden, and the warm friend of Gustavus, was ready to make any promise for the rich daughter of the minister Necker. He was thirty-seven, she only a little more than half his age, twenty, but she accepted him because her parents were pleased. Going to Paris, she was, of course, received at court, Marie Antoinette paying her much attention. Necker was soon recalled from exile to his old position. The funds rose thirty per cent, and he became the idol of the people. Soon representative government was demanded, and then, though the king granted it, the breach was widened. 
Necker, unpopular with the bad advisers of the king, was again asked to leave Paris and make no noise about it. But the people, hearing of it, soon demanded his recall, and he was hastily brought back from Brussels, riding through the streets, like the sovereign of a nation, said his daughter. The people were wild with delight. But matters had gone too far to prevent a bloody revolution. Soon a mob was marching toward Versailles, thousands of men, women, and even children armed with pikes. They reached the palace, killed the guards, and penetrated to the queen's apartments, while some filled the courtyard and demanded bread. The brave Marie Antoinette appeared on the balcony, leading her two children, while Lafayette knelt by her side and kissed her hand. But the people could not be appeased. Necker, finding himself unable to serve his king longer, fled to his Swiss retreat at Coppet, and there remained till his death. Madame de Stahl, as the wife of the Swedish ambassador, continued in the turmoil, writing her father daily, and talking an active interest in politics. In England, she said, women are accustomed to be silent before men when political questions are discussed. In France, they direct all conversation, and their minds readily acquire the facility and talent which this privilege requires. Lafayette, Narbonne, and Talleyrand consulted with her. She wrote the principal part of Talleyrand's report on public instruction in 1790. She procured the appointment of Narbonne to the ministry, and later, when Talleyrand was in exile, obtained his appointment to the Department of Foreign Affairs. Matters had gone from bad to worse. In 1792, the Swedish government suspended its embassy, and Madame de Stahl prepared to fly, but stayed for a time to save her friends. The seven prisons of Paris were all crowded under the fearful reign of Danton and Marat. Great heaps of dead lay before every prison door. During the reign of terror, it is estimated that 18,600 persons perished by the guillotine. Whole squares were shot down. When the police visited her house, where some of the ministers were hidden, she met them graciously, urging that they must not violate the privacy of an ambassador's house. When her friends were arrested, she went to the barbarous leaders and with her eloquence begged for their safety and thus saved the lives of many. At last she must leave the terror-stricken city, supposing that her rank as the wife of a foreign ambassador would protect her. She started with a carriage and six horses, her servants in livery. At once a crowd of half-famished and haggard women crowded around and threw themselves against the horses. The carriage was stopped, and the occupants were taken to the assembly. She pled her case before the noted Robespierre, and then waited for six hours for the decision of the commune. Meantime, she saw the hired assassins pass beneath the windows, their bare arms covered with the blood of the slain. The mob attempted to pillage her carriage, but a strong man mounted the box and defended it. She learned afterward that it was the notorious Santerre, the person who later superintended the execution of Louis XVI, ordering his drummers to drown the last words of the dying king. Santerre had seen Necker distribute corn to the poor of Paris in a time of famine, 
and now he was befriending the daughter for this noble act. Finally she was allowed to continue her journey and reach Coppet with her baby, August, well nigh exhausted after this terrible ordeal. The Swiss home soon became a place of refuge for those who were flying from the horrors of the commune. She kept a faithful agent, who knew the mountain passes, busy in this work of mercy. The following year, 1793, longing for a change from these dreadful times, she visited England and received much attention from prominent persons, among them Fanny Burney, the author of Evelina, who owned that she had never heard conversation before, the most animated eloquence, the keenest observation, the most sparkling wit, the most courtly grace, were united to charm her. On January 21st of this year, the unfortunate king had met his death on the scaffold before an immense throng of people. Six men bound him to the plank, and then his head was severed from his body amid the shouts and waving of hats of the bloodthirsty crowd. Necker had begged to go before the convention and plead for his king, but was refused. Madame de Stahl wrote a vigorous appeal to the nation in behalf of the beautiful and tender-hearted Marie Antoinette, but on September 16, 1793, at four o'clock in the morning, in an open cart, in the midst of thirty thousand troops and a noisy rabble, she too was borne to the scaffold and when her pale face was held up bleeding before the crowd, they jeered and shouted themselves hoarse. The next year, 1794, Madame Necker died at Coppet, whispering to her husband, We shall see each other in heaven. She looked heavenward, said Necker, in a most affecting manner. Listening while I prayed, then in dying, raised the finger of her left hand, which wore the ring I had given her, to remind me of the pledge engraved upon it, to love her forever. His devotion to her was beautiful. No language, says his daughter, can give any adequate idea of it. Exhausted by wakefulness at night, she slept often in the daytime, resting her head on his arm. I have seen him remain immovable for hours together, standing in the same position for fear of awakening her by the least movement. Absent from her during a few hours of sleep, he inquired on his return of her attendant if she had asked for him. She could no longer speak, but made an effort to say, yes, yes. When the revolution was over and France had become a republic, Sweden sent back her ambassador, Baron de Stahl, and his wife returned to him at Paris. Again, her salon became the center for the great men of the time. She loved liberty and believed in the republican form of government. She had written her book upon the influence of the passions on the happiness of individuals and nations, prompted by the horrors of the revolution, and it was considered irresistible in energy and dazzling in thought. She was also devoting much time to her child, August, developing him without punishment, thinking that there had been too much rigor in her own childhood. He well repaid her for her gentleness and trust, and was inseparable from her through life, becoming a noble Christian man and the helper of all good causes. Meantime, Madame de Stahl saw with alarm the growing influence of the young Corsican officer, Bonaparte. The chief executive power had been placed in the hands of the directory, and he had control of the army. He had won brilliant victories in Italy, 
and had been made commander-in-chief of the expedition against Egypt. He now returned to Paris, turned out the directory, drove out the council of five hundred from the hall of the assembly at the point of the bayonet, made the government into a consulate with three consuls of whom he was the first, and lived at the Tuileries in almost royal style. All this time Madame de Stal felt the egotism and heartlessness of Napoleon. Her salon became more crowded than ever with those who had their fears for the future. The most eloquent of the Republican orators were those who borrowed from her most of their ideas and telling phrases. Most of them went forth from her door with speeches ready for the next day, and with resolution to pronounce them, a courage which was also derived from her. Lucien and Joseph Bonaparte, the brothers of Napoleon, were proud of her friendship, and often were guests at her house, until forbidden by their brother. When Benjamin Constant made a speech against the rising tyranny, Napoleon suspected that she had prompted it, and denounced her heartily, all the time declaring that he loved the Republic and would always defend it. He said persons always come away from de Stahl's home, less his friends than when they entered. About this time her book, Literature Considered in its Relation to Social Institutions, was published and made a surprising impression from its wealth of knowledge and power of thought. Its analysis of Greek and Latin literature and the chief works in Italian, English, German, and French astonished everybody because written by a woman. Soon after, Necker published his last views of politics and finance, in which he wrote against the tyranny of a single man. At once, Napoleon caused a sharp letter to be written to Necker, advising him to leave politics to the first consul, who was alone able to govern France, and threatening his daughter with exile for her supposed aid in his book. She saw the wisdom of escaping from France, lest she be imprisoned and immediately hastened to Calpet. A few months later, in the winter of 1802, she returned to Paris to bring home Baron de Stahl, who was ill, and from whom she had separated because he was spending all her fortune and that of her three children. He died on the journey. Virtually banished from France, she now wrote her Delphine, a brilliant novel, which was widely read, it received its name from a singular circumstance. Desirous of meeting the first consul for some urgent reason, says Dr. Stevens in his charming biography of Madame de Stahl, she went to the villa of Madame de Montesson, whither he frequently resorted. She was alone in one of the sails when he arrived, accompanied by the consular court of brilliant young woman. The latter knew the growingly hostility of their master toward her, and passed, without noticing her, to the other end of the sal, leaving her entirely alone. Her position was becoming extremely painful, when a young lady, more courageous and more compassionate than her companions, crossed the sal, and took a seat by her side. Madame de Stahl was touched by this kindness, and asked for her Christian name. Delphine she responded. Ah, I will try to immortalize it, exclaimed Madame de Stahl, and she kept her word. This sensible young lady was the Comtesse de Custine. Her home at Copet became the home of many great people. Sismondi, 
the author of the history of the italian republics and literature of southern europe encouraged by her wrote here several of his famous works bonstetten made his home here for years Schlegel, the greatest critic of his age became the teacher of her children and a most intimate friend benjamin constant the author and statesman was here all repaired to their rooms for work in the morning and in the evening enjoyed philosophic literary and political discussions von stetten said in seeing her in hearing her i feel myself electrified she daily becomes greater and better but souls of great talent have great sufferings they are solitary in the world like mont blanc in the autumn of 1803 longing for paris she ventured to correction correction in the autumn of 1803 longing for paris she ventured to within ten leagues and hired a quiet home word was soon borne to napoleon that the road to her house was thronged with visitors he at once sent an officer with a letter signed by himself exiling her to forty league from paris and commanding her to leave within twenty-four hours at once she fled to germany at frankfurt her little daughter was dangerously ill i knew no person in the city she writes i did not know the language and the physician to whom i confided my child could not speak french but my father shared my trouble he consulted physicians at geneva and sent me their prescriptions oh what would become of a mother trembling for the life of her child if it were not for prayer going to weimar she met goethe Wieland, schiller and other noted men at berlin the greatest attention was shown her the beautiful louise of prussia welcomed her heartily during this exile her father died with his latest breath saying she has loved me dearly she has loved me dearly on his deathbed he wrote a letter to bonaparte telling him that his daughter was in no wise responsible for his book but it was never answered it was enough for napoleon to know that she did not flatter him therefore he wished her out of the way madame de stal was for a time completely overcome by necker's death she wore his picture on her person as long as she lived only once did she part with it and then she imagined it might console her daughter in her illness giving it to her she said gaze upon it gaze upon it when you are in pain she now sought repose in italy preparing those beautiful descriptions for her corinne and finally returning to copet spent a year in writing her book it was published in paris and says saint bove its success was instantaneous and universal as a work of art as a poem the romance of corinne is an immortal monument jeffrey in the edinburgh review called the author the greatest writer in france since voltaire and rousseau and the greatest woman writer of any age or country napoleon however in his official paper caused a scathing criticism on corinne to appear indeed it was declared to be from his own pen she was told by the minister of police that she had but to insert some praise of napoleon in corinne and she would be welcomed 
back to Paris. She could not, however, live a lie, and she feared Napoleon had evil designs upon France. Again she visited Germany with her children Schlegel and Sismondi. So eager was everybody to see her and hear her talk, that Bettina von Arnmann says in her correspondence with Goethe, the gentlemen stood around the table and planted themselves behind us, elbowing one another. They leaned quite over me, and I said in French, Your adorers quite suffocate me. While in Germany, her eldest son, then seventeen, had an interview with Bonaparte about the return of his mother. Your mother, said Napoleon, could not be six months in Paris before I should be compelled to send her to Bistri or the temple. I should regret this necessity, for it would make a noise and might injure me a little in public opinion. Say, therefore, to her that as long as I live she cannot re-enter Paris. I see what you wish, but it cannot be. She will commit follies. She will have the world about her. On her return to Copet, she spent two years in writing her Almang, for which she had been making researches for four years. She wished it published in Paris, as Corinne had been, and submitted it to the censors of the press. They crossed out whatever sentiments they thought might displease Napoleon, and then ten thousand copies were at once printed, she meantime removing to France, within her proscribed limits, that she might correct the proof sheets. What was her astonishment to have Napoleon order the whole ten thousand destroyed and her to leave France in three days? Her two sons attempted to see Bonaparte, who was at Fontainebleau, but were ordered to turn back or they would be arrested. The only reason given for destroying the work was the fact that she had been silent about the great but egotistical emperor. Broken in spirit, she returned to Geneva, Amid all this darkness, a new light was about to beam upon her life. In the social gatherings made for her, she observed a young army officer, Monsieur Rocca, broken in health from his many wounds, but handsome and noble in face, and, as she learned, of irreproachable life. Though only twenty-three and she forty-five, the young officer was fascinated by her conversation and refreshed in spirits by her presence. She sympathized with his misfortunes in battle. She admired his courage. He was lofty in sentiments, tender in heart, and gave her what she had always needed, an unselfish and devoted love. When discouraged by his friends, he replied, I will love her so much that I will finish by making her marry me. They were married in 1811, and the marriage was a singularly happy one, the reason for it is not difficult to perceive. A marriage that has not a pretty face or a passing fancy for its foundation, but appreciation of a gifted mind and noble heart, such a marriage stands the test of time. The marriage was kept secret from all save a few intimate friends. Madame de Stal, fearing that if the news reached Napoleon, Rocca would be ordered back to France. Her fears were only too well founded. Schlegel, Madame Rosmier, all who had shown any sympathy for her, began to be exiled. She was forbidden, under any pretext whatever, from traveling in Switzerland or entering any region annexed to France. She was advised 
not to go two leagues from Copet, lest she be imprisoned, and this, with Napoleon, usually meant death. The emperor seemed about to conquer the whole world. Whether could she fly to escape his persecution? She longed to reach England, but there was an edict against any French subject entering that country without special permit. Truly his heel was upon France. The only way to reach that country was through Austria, Russia, and Sweden, two thousand leagues. But she must attempt it. She passed an hour in prayer by her parents' tomb, kissed his armchair and table, and took his cloak to wrap herself in should death come. May twenty-third, 1812, she with Rocca and two of her children began their flight by carriage, not telling the servants at the chateau, but that they should return for the next meal. They reached Vienna June 6th, and were at once put under surveillance. Everywhere she saw placards admonishing the officers to watch her sharply. Rocca had to make his way alone because Bonaparte had ordered his arrest. They were permitted to remain only a few hours in any place. Once Madame de Stahl was so overcome by this brutal treatment that she lost consciousness and was obliged to be taken from her carriage to the roadside till she recovered. Every hour she expected arrest and death. Finally, worn in body, she reached Russia and was cordially received by Alexander and Empress Elizabeth. From here she went to Sweden and had an equally cordial welcome from Bernadotte, the general who became king. Afterwards she spent four months in England bringing out Almon. Here she received a perfect ovation at Lord Lansdowne's. The first ladies in the kingdom mounted on chairs and tables to catch a glimpse of her. Sir James Mackintosh said, the whole fashionable and literary world is occupied with Madame de Stahl, the most celebrated woman of this, or perhaps of any age. Very rare must be the case, where a woman of fine mind does not have many admirers among gentlemen. Her Almang was published in 1813, the manuscript having been secretly carried over Germany, Poland, Russia, Sweden, and the Baltic Sea. The first part treated of the manners of Germany, the second, its literature and art, the third, its philosophy and morals, the fourth, its religion. The book had a wonderful sale and was soon translated into all the principal tongues of Europe. Lamartine said, Her style, without losing any of its youthful vigor and splendor, seemed now to be illuminated with more lofty and eternal lights as she approached the evening of life and the diviner mysteries of thought. This style no longer paints, no longer chants, it adores. Her name will live as long as literature, as long as the history of her country. Meantime, great changes had taken place in France. Napoleon had been defeated at Leipzig, leaving a quarter of a million murdered on his battlefields. He had abdicated and was on his way to Elba. She immediately returned to Paris with much the same feeling as Victor Hugo, when he wept as he came from his long exile under Napoleon the Little. Again to her salon came kings and generals, Alexander of Russia, Wellington, and others. But soon Napoleon returned, and she fled to Copet. He sent her an invitation to come to Paris, declaring he would now live for the peace of Europe, but she could not trust him. 
she saw her daughter, lovely and beautiful, married to the Duc de Broglie, a leading statesman, and was happy in her happiness. Rocca's health was failing, and they repaired to Italy for a time. In 1860 they returned to Paris, Napoleon having gone from his final defeat to St. Helena, but Madame de Stahl was broken with her trials. She seemed to grow more and more frail till the end came. She said frequently, My father awaits me on the other shore. To Chateaubriand, she said, I have loved God, my father, and my country. She could not and would not go to sleep the last night for fear she might never look upon Rocca again. He begged her to sleep, and he would awaken her often. Good night, she said, and it was forever. She never wakened. They buried her beside her father at Copet, under the grand old trees. Rocca died in seven months, at the age of thirty-one. I hoped, he said, to have died in her arms. Her little son, Enrocas, five years old, was cared for by Auguste and Albertine, her daughter. After Madame de Stal's death, her considerations on the French Revolution and ten years of exile were published. Of the former, St. Beuve says, its publication was an event. It was the splendid public obsequies of the authoress. Its politics were designed to long and passionate discussions and a durable influence. She is perfect only from this day. The full influence of her star is only at her tomb. Chateaubriand said, Her death made one of those breaches which the fall of a superior intellect produces once in an age, and which can never be closed. As kind as she was great, loving deeply and receiving love in return, she has left an imperishable name. No wonder that thousands visit that quiet grave besides Lake Geneva. End of Section 10 Recording by Jill Preston